Second Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse one. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. I would like you to imagine that Pastor Kyle and myself both decided to retire, and you had to find a new pastor for North Point. Now, a few super pastors apply for this role. Gordon Conwell graduates, perhaps, with further degrees, PhDs, and all sorts of things. A history of working, perhaps, in mega churches, of publishing books, of giving talks around the country, being evangelical darlings, now, you know if you hire one of these pastors, North Point will probably triple in size in a year and keep on growing after that. You must be pretty special, this uh, pastor search committee, that these pastors even want to come to North Point. And if you can pull one of these guys in, you will feel honoured just to be associated with them. You and North Point will become great by association. And in the mix, there's a third candidate. Now, some of you might even remember him because he was one of the original founders of North Point. He served as part of the team that helped to get the church off the ground. And he didn't get paid. He worked doing manual labor and serving voluntarily. Now, he was never flashy, and he still isn't. He was never dynamic, and he still isn't. He never made claims of being a spiritual giant, and he still doesn't. He was an ordinary preacher and still is. He didn't whip the crowd into a frenzy. And his message included the need for suffering as well as the experience of triumph, not instead of the experience of triumph. You look at his resume, you think, okay, he seems pretty ordinary, but maybe there's something great in his resume. And you read that since he's left North Point, he's living, lived a poverty-stricken life. He's been a vagrant. More often than not, he's had 
nothing to eat or to wear. He has a criminal record in several different courts on several different counts, and he's spent time in prison. He's been publicly flogged for civil disobedience and causing unrest. And he's currently on the run from another state where he snuck across the border, hidden in a basket. Perhaps he is the rock of stability emotionally. Perhaps that's what he's got to offer. But when you talk to him about that, he says, no, no, he spends many a sleepless nights worrying about the churches. You now have the same choice in front of you that the Corinthians had in front of them. The super apostles that we began to look at in chapter 11, or Paul, this less than stellar resume uh, apostle that's saying to them, there's something going on here, something different. You have a choice between the prestigious or the preposterous. Who would choose Paul in this circumstance? He carries so much baggage with him. He brings so many problems. He causes so much disturbance. And I guess an even stranger question to ask is, why would Paul put chapter 11 and 12 in his resume? Who would put all of this brokenness and suffering into a resume? Now, to date, he's mentioned these things without apology or explanation. And we mean looking at them over the previous weeks. But today, Paul explains all as he bears his heart showing his glory and pain to us. And we're going to look at this in two sections. We're going to look at the vision section, which uh, I'm calling super apostle boasting put into perspective. It's not exactly catchy. So you can call it the weakness of strength. And then the other section is called real apostle boasting put into perspective. Also not very catchy. So that one you can call the strength of weakness. So we're looking at the weakness of strength and the strength of weakness. Let's jump into the first point, verses 1 to 5. Super apostle boasting put into perspective or the weakness of strength. Let me read verses 1 to 5 again. I must go, in boasting, go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast of a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Well, let's start by unpacking what's this vision all about? What's this stuff about a third heaven. Well, let's throw away any notions of there being tiers of heaven. You can get to tier one, and then if you're a little bit better Christian, you can get to tier two. And if you're an even better Christian, you can get to tier three. That's not what's going on. In the ancient Near East, they had this idea of geography that wasn't as refined as ours. You had the firmament down here. And then above the firmament, and you can see this as you read through Genesis 1, the creation narrative, the same idea of the geography is present in that. And above that, you had the sky, where the birds fly and where the clouds are. That was called the first heaven. They're simply saying the sky that's above us, the sky, the space above the firmament. The second heaven were the stars and the sun and all the things in the, in the cosmos. 
And the third heaven was where God lived. It was the throne room of God. So in their picture of the geography of the world, there was these three layers. First layer, sky. Second layer, cosmos. Third layer, kingdom of God. Throne room of the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here. They went to the throne room of God. It's the same throne room that we see in the visions of Daniel and the visions of John in Revelation. And Paul speaks in the third person about this, but he's actually speaking about himself, and you can see that if you look in verse 7. And Paul has an amazing revelation, a transforming revelation, no doubt, a super-apostle, material, resume-building revelation. Why on earth didn't he lead with this? Why wasn't this the first thing he put in his resume? Look at me! I went up to the third heaven. I hung out with God. He told me amazing things. I'm the guy that you should be going for, not these other super apostles. I'm the superest of all super apostles. Is he burying the lead here? What is going on? He's not just burying the lead. He actually uses this as a warning, two warnings in fact, one in this section and one in the next section. One that points to us in the sense of how we look at and understand our leaders and the people who, who communicate and bring the word to us. And the other, which looks at how we ourselves need to respond to these things, both about us, one as from the view of the congregation, the other from the view of the leaders themselves, or all Christians for themselves. So let's jump into this first one. And we see here in verse 6 and 7, he's just told us what an amazing vision he's had. And then he says, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I want you to look at me. I want you to judge me on something else. I'm going to read them. Even if I could boast, I would be a fool because I wouldn't, would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do and what I say or because of these surpassingly great Revelations. In other words, he's saying, I don't want you to judge me by this revelation. And I don't want you to judge me by anything else but what I do or say. We might even go on to say how well he loves them. Does, and this is a question that we can ask our own, ourselves about those who love and serve us, about the elders and the pastors that we encounter in this church and other churches. What do they do? What do they say? Do they turn up for you when they need you? Do they encourage you when you need it? Do they rebuke you when you need it? Do they exhort you when you need it? Do not judge leaders by their surpassingly great revelations. Judge them by what they do and what they say. Now, we're going to jump into the three characteristics of this vision, which I think are really important to understand. Firstly, we see... In verse 2, that this is an unusual vision. This vision happened 14 years ago, probably when Paul was in Tarsus. He was a new Christian. It doesn't happen every day. This is not something, well, you know, I was in the throne room of heaven again this morning, and this is what God said. It's not how it's working here. There's clearly something about this particular vision which was special and unique and very, very unusual. And Paul makes that clear. 14 years ago this happened. Not every day, not last week, 14 years ago. Not an everyday occurrence, not something that people should expect to be happening uh, as part of their normal faith life, and certainly 
not something that even happened like that for Paul. Secondly, we see that it was pretty special. And we can see that in verse 5, where he says, I could boast of a man, or I will boast of a man like that, but I will not boast about myself. In other words, he's saying, look, in some sense, this is a pretty amazing thing. This is a pretty special thing. You might even argue that this is something worthy of boasting. But I'm not going to boast about that. And he's in the third person. And why is he in the third person? And he's passive. Every verb he uses is passive. Was caught up. Heard inexpressible things. Again and again, it's passive. He's basically saying, I claim no credit for this. I'm actually looking on as an observer. I'm speaking of what happened to me. He is not saying this is something that he achieved or something that gives him unique uh, specialness in his own self or some sort of special worth within himself. There is nothing here to boast about. He's not saying, I know how to get to the third heaven. And let me tell you, because I have this great knowledge, special knowledge that can get you there. He's not saying that. He's not saying if you fast this way and then you pray this way, and then you do this, you can get to the third heaven. He's actually saying, it is not through my efforts. And he tells us twice that he doesn't even know exactly what happened. Was he in-body, out-of-body experience? He doesn't know. The experience was overwhelming for him. It was amazing. It was incredible. But he recognizes that it was not him. It was not anything that he did. It was nothing that he wants to claim credit for or boast about. And third... We see that it's personal. We see that in verse 4. I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, isn't this interesting? He could have spent a whole lot of time coming back and telling us how wonderful he is because he was called up to this third heaven, into the throne room of God. But he recognizes that these experiences can be private and they can be personal. Super apostles, they would have all boasted about this to gain credibility. Do you know any super apostles? Do you know any of these people who walk around saying all the time, the Lord told me this, I heard from the Lord. And not in a humble, meaningful way about their own life, but in a sense where they're spiritually aggrandizing. They're sort of trying to claim spiritual credit by the way they talk uh, about themselves. They bring their focus onto their own sense of worthiness and spirituality rather than pointing to Christ. Now, this is sort of like when you're in a marriage, right? There are plenty of pieces in a marriage relationship which should say private and, in fact, do better off being private. They're actually cheapened when they're expanded and made public to other people. And it is the same with our relationship with God. There can be moments in our relationship with God, which we don't need to go and broadcast to everybody else simply because it makes us look spiritually uh, great or, or standing up as if we are some sort of spiritual giant in some way. There is a danger of spiritual superiority here that Paul is warning us of. And he's saying, I don't want to go anywhere near that. A danger of parading our spiritual achievements. And Paul's saying, I don't want to go anywhere near that. And the warning to us is be very, very suspicious of people touting their encounters with the Lord. Making others, quite honestly, often feel like second-class citizens. If you don't understand what spiritual maturity really is, and you hear all of these people talking about all of these 
wonderful encounters that they're having with the Lord, it's pretty hard not to feel spiritually inferior, to feel like you're not as good as, that there's something wrong with you, that your walk is in some way less than. Paul is speaking very clearly against it. Some things you just don't need or shouldn't share because they're harmful, they're damaging. They create this wrong idea about what spiritual maturity really is. Paul is saying, I'm not authenticated by my spiritual encounters. I'm not authenticated by my miracles and my wonders. I'm authenticated by what true love is. Go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians. It's read in every single, not every single, but nearly every single marriage that you go to. Love is, right? They're actually not talking about marriage. They're talking about the community of God and the way that interacts with everybody else. And they're saying the spectacular is not what it's about. It's about love. It's about turning up. It's about being present. It's about what you do and what you say. How do you determine if a car is running well? Do you look inside the window and you see the big fuzzy dice hanging from the mirror? And the bigger the fuzzy dice the better the car's running, right? Actually, not a very good measure. It's not a very good gauge of how well the car is working, right? How do you tell if a Christian is running well? Well, the supernatural encounters, encounters and the spiritual gifts, or do you tell by what they do or what they say? And Paul is saying, you look at what they do and what they say. Now, Here's the question that we need to take away from this part of this passage. Can you tell the difference between the bling and the substance of the Christian walk? Can you tell the difference between the bling and the substance of the Christian walk? We move on to the second point. Real apostles boasting put into perspective the strength of weakness. Now here we're talking about the thorn in the flesh. I'm going to read verses 6 to the first part of 9 out loud. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now what's the thorn in the flesh? Well, believe me, many people have had a good effort at making a guess of this, and they are all guesses. I'll let you know just out of curiosity what some of the answers are. Some people said because of the word flesh, it must be a physical illness or chronic condition causing pain. Some people said angel from Satan, angel being the Greek word for messenger. Perhaps this is a difficult person in Paul's life causing him trouble. Some people said because of all his troubles, he had malaria and it kept on reoccurring and he kept on feeling weak and run down. Some people said he was depressed because he'd failed to convert the Jews. Some people say he was going blind, and they use Galatians 4 as a reference to that, where the Galatians say, out of love, if we could, we'd pluck out our eyes and give them to you. All we know really is that it was something that was a torment 
to Paul. Think about this. He's just listed a litany of things that's happened to him in chapter 11 that we looked at in the past week. And this is worse. This is worse than what we looked at in the last two weeks. All those terrible things that had happened to Paul. This is a real thorn that's getting in the way of his ministry and it's really bothering him. And three times he asked for it to be taken away. It's getting in the way of my calling. Get this away from me. Take this away so I can get on with my ministry. We see also that it originated both from the work of Satan and from the work of God, which means it's not a limitation. You see, we were created as limited beings. We think that we may be under the illusion that we are limited. We are limited, and we will always be limited. In the coming kingdom, we will remain limited. We are not gods, but we will be fully satisfied and complete within our limited capacity as creatures. This is an affliction. This is something that will be taken away in the coming kingdom, but it's not being taken away now. And Paul sees a direct connection, and we see this in verse, the second part of 7b, and I'll read it again because it's so important. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So you see that Paul sees there's a direct connection between this amazing vision that he had and this, uh, this thorn in his side. Now, Paul, the true apostle, the one that has all the spiritual bling that anyone could have wanted or used, is saying, I'm at risk of being conceited. Not despite the bling, but because of the bling. And maybe I'm being a little flippant here because this bling clearly has purpose. We're talking about spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit to use in ministry. And we're not using the term bling to make those gifts insignificant or unimportant. But what we're really saying here, they are not the crux of his relationship with God. Bling has a purpose. It's gifts given to us to use in ministry. But never think that God needs your bling. That's the very definition of conceitedness. Stages of spiritual demise go like this. I am gifted by God. God couldn't do this without me. I am God. Now, of course, none of us say that in the intellectual sense where we, we would ever say in our minds or to other people that we think we're God. But the way we behave and the way we treat other people implies that we think we are God, that we're somehow special and entitled. So there's a sense in which we move through that. I'm gifted. God couldn't do this without me. I am God in the way I live my life. And we're missing something here. There's a lack of humility, a lack of understanding of the importance of submission and dependence here. Ministry is life lived in service of God. And it's by, now this is going to come as a shock to you, and I'm talking here about all ministry. I'm not talking about professional ministry from the pulpit or anyone who's in some sort of uh, parachurch. I'm talking about Husband ministry, wife ministry, child ministry, student ministry. And by that I mean living your life faithfully to God. As you engage in your calling, as you make your story part of God's big story, that act of being engaged in the kingdom of God, that sort of ministry is by invitation and it's a privilege extended by God. 
We are invited into his story. It's an honor and a blessing to serve, even to suffer for him. See, here's the big deal, right? Here's the big point here. A small God needs us, but a big God delights in us. Let me say that again because it's really important to wrap your head around. A small God needs us. <coughs> if you have a small God, you're going to think, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, if I don't use this gift, if I'm not this, if I'm not that, the kingdom of God is going to fall apart. A small God needs us. A big God delights in us. How big is your God? How big is your God? Paul, used by God to do so much, was at risk of becoming conceited. Perhaps the prayer to remove the thorn had a little bit of this conceit in it. Now, I say this, I don't know this, but I'm sort of giving you this prayer in the way that I know that I've sort of been prone to pray it myself. I can see Paul saying, God, remove this so I can get on with building a kingdom. And then God says back to Paul, Paul, I don't need you to build my kingdom. I offered that as a way for you to experience and know me and you should do what you're able to do within your limitations and your infirmaries be faithful and encounter me sure but remember even that even that all that you can do for me all of that is about that encountering me i don't need you but i love you and i delight in you and my grace is sufficient for you and that's all you need that's all you need and this last part is much more Paul than me but I can imagine Paul saying what a blessing to be reminded of my dependence bring on the weakness that reminds me of your grace now Paul we're concluding now looking at this passage it is not, Paul is not a masochist who enjoys suffering. Paul boasts of his weakness because he knows it is a necessary corrective to conceitedness. And he's excited about that. There's delight and joy in that. Let me read verses 9, the second half of 9 to the end of the chapter. Therefore I boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For I am weak, then I am strong. Now there's a lot in this. First of all, he knows his heart is deceptive. And that he would become deceit, uh, conceited if God didn't provide this corrective. So in embracing the corrective, he is by definition embracing the reality that he could become conceited. He's embracing not only the infliction, but his spiritual brokenness. He needs God to keep him humble. I'm a broken, messed up puppy, and I need help to stay dependent and, submission, and in submission. You can see the new prayer arising out of Paul's experience here. Please, please don't remove this thorn until you remove the brokenness in the fullness of the coming, in fact, coming kingdom. In fact, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses, put them in the forefront of my mind, so that I'm reminded just how dependent I am, so that my spiritual brokenness, my pride and my conceit, even about my kingdom accomplishments, accomplishments and my spiritual uh, bling doesn't 
get in the way of my relationship with you. Doesn't get in the way of me remembering my dependence and my need for submission. Now we all get this, right? We get this in respect of our salvation. I can't save myself. But it goes so much deeper than just our salvation. Did you know it's safe to tell God that you're failing? To be honest to God about your failures as a father and a spouse and a student and a worker. To be honest to God about your failings in your devotional life, the poverty of your devotional life, your addictions, your work ethic, whether it's too much or too little or too connected to your ego. And it's okay to tell God about your tendency towards conceit. God is not going to say, look at you with a stern, wiggly finger and say, failure, you've let me down again. I was depending on you. How will I bring about my kingdom now? That is not how God is going to respond. And yet so many times, that's the way we believe that God is thinking about us or seeing us. God is going to say, I know, I know. And my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you yesterday. My grace is sufficient for you today. And my grace will be sufficient for you every tomorrow from now on. Now, Christian maturity is the movement from proud, conceited, bling-focused faith used to draw attention to ourselves to a faith grounded in dependence that recognizes brokenness and embraces weakness and chases submission. Paul is forcing the Galatians and us into a crisis, not asking them or us just to tolerate weakness. He is asking them and us to embrace the value of weakness that creates a heart of dependence and submission and cures a heart of conceitedness. Let's pray. Let God and Heavenly Father help us not to get caught up in the wonderful experience of building a kingdom. Help us, of course, to be engaged in that, to delight in that, to experience you in that. But help us not to get caught up believing that you are dependent on us rather than us dependent on you. Help us to understand that that's by invitation, that you delight in us. And one of the ways that we encounter you is by moving faithful into service. Help our hearts, which are so corrupt, not be corrupt. Help us to hold up our weaknesses because they protect us from spiritual demise. Let God help us not to try to even be super apostles, but to be people of love who care about what we do and what we say. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.